This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. Ahoy, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. I've got a conversation with one of the great rock and roll luminaries, Dana Strum, to share with you. Now he's been the bassist with Vinnie Vincent Invasion, Vince Neil, but most significantly Slaughter. That's his band. Okay, now they are due to appear at Glamfest. I hope it still goes bloody ahead because the Brisbane shows have been cancelled. They're happening at the end of this week, that being the 17th of February, I think is the show. Either way, I'll put the... Hardly any of you listen from Australia, so it's sort of beside the point, isn't it? But I'll put the show dates in the episode description if you are on shore. Now, this conversation is one of those ones I've been hoping to have for a long time. It was a bucket list item, I've got to say, because Dana has all of the stories and he shares many of them here. It could have gone on for much longer, no doubt, but why not save a bit of that mystery and that intrigue for his autobiography? Okay, here he is, Dana Strum. Hello there, hello there, how are you? Great. Great to, I guess, you know, <laughs> what can I say? Great to finally talk to you. You're one of those blokes that I've had on my radar as a podcaster for many years now. So it's a, it's just awesome that this could happen, actually. Uh, very nice to meet you. And uh, thank you for uh, being aware of myself and the band. And I see guitars in the background and I see vinyl in the background <laughs> and um, I see CDs in the background. So you're a music guy, which... I love anybody who loves music, so that's great. Yeah, I've just come off seventy thousand tons of metal as well. If you've ever, if you've heard of that, and if you've ever ever had the chance to go on it, but if you haven't, please do because it's it's unreal. Yeah, we do monsters of rock cruise, mm. and uh, it's you know it's it's one of those experiences too. You come off and you're very moved at the people's enthusiasm and dedication and knowledge of of everything, and it. It, it's I love those things. They're they're really cool. Mm. This tour coming to Australia, I know it's been a long time coming. So how did it how did it come about? Um, here here's the real truth that on the very first slaughter tour was the Kiss tour, and then we did uh, we Poison, and then we did the Aussie No More Tears tour, but never once were we ever asked to go. Hmm. And people like, you know, why didn't you come over? I'm like, we were never asked. And uh, Danny uh, contacted our agent. And uh, then we all put a conference together. And I said, do you do you think there's enough interest in the slaughter music there to do what you need? You know, and he's I'm going to make a big festival. I said, well, forget just the big festival. Is there enough interest in our music to do this? And because I don't want you to lose and I, I want everybody to win. Um, you know, we do really well in the U.S., Canada, Mexico and, and Japan. And I'd love to be able to go back to new areas. I'm excited about it. Um, everybody here always says, oh, God, tell me what it's like. There's a lot of interest from U.S. people about what it's like in Australia. Um, but we were never asked. So uh, Danny talked about it. And uh, I, you know, I said, well, let's sleep on it. Just no, I don't want there to be any pressure. I want you to, if it's, if it's good for you and you've done your homework. And he said, look, I've been leaking little things out about you guys' history with Vinny and Slaughter and this. I think I have enough vibe that it, it'll do all right. And I'm like, it's your area. It's your market, man. If you can do it, we'd love to be there. I said, the simple truth, we've never been asked by anybody that can really pull it off. 
Well, it's been a long time coming, to say the least, and I know you've been hit up by Australian fans about all of that, but in, uh, given you've got a 35-year history, and that's just slaughter, by the way. I know you've been doing this a lot longer than that, Vinnie Vincent, the work. So what sort of a – I know – forgive the question because I know it's a, the run-of-the-mill question, but in terms of the set list, have you got any ideas about what that will look like? Yeah, so – we do something a little different than, than, you know, many of the bands. I've been around a number of the bands um, and everybody has their own method to their madness. So what we, Mark and I do is we pull the sound exchange numbers for streaming mm -hmm. and we pull the BMI numbers, which is a songwriting association that represents in particular our stuff. Um, and then we pull off of YouTube, the top plays, the top songs. Because not in 1990 or 91 when the stuff came out, 92, 93, 94, but what's going on in 23 and 24. And so we pull those and they create the list out of the things that people are sucking down now. And then we always say, is there anything really missing? Now, the truth? No, there really isn't. Um, it's everything that is the top download and top streamed thing flight of the angels up all night mad about you every one of them is in our list and i'm like well there it is there's the top 10 and every one of those 10 are in the core list um and you know we're going to do a few different things because we've never been there um but the band plays live and everybody in the band plays their instrument reasonably well um and so it's it's fun to improv and have some fun in and out of the song so we always throw in something that's unique or different or some zeppelin cover or something that like get out of here they're really gonna you know some we'll, we'll play with the immigrant song and things that you, you have to be a certain kind of singer to even do it yeah great yeah surely you, you've been hit up too to play some vinnie vincent stuff as well People have said things uh, uh, over over the years, and I smile gently. That's my <laughs> diplomatic response. Uh, Mark smiles a little less gently, and uh, I think you know one point in life will probably do something you never know. We have pulled out uh, moments of a few of those songs, and people are like, "Wow, they're really good." And you know, then you kind of like, "Just kidding," mm -hmm. and. Uh, it, it's it's a it's a colorful period in our life, um, and we learned a lot from that period. I usually ask this question at the end with somebody of your stature and legacy, okay? But I'm going to hit you up with it up top, and that is that we've too many stories are going to the grave, unfortunately, from rock and metal, okay? And we are getting to a point where people are starting to shuffle off the mortal coil, as you know. So you have not just a unique story, but the key word is a very compelling story. So please tell me you've got an autobiography in the works. I do. We've been working, uh, myself and my team people with me are working with a couple of best-selling authors to talk about my story because it was so different. And I was the son of a scientist. I was thrown out of my house because I played music. And I lived on the floor of a recording studio, cleaning the toilets and wrapping cables um, to get a start. And they gave me a place to live as long as I could roll up my sleeping bag with a bungee cord and put it away before the doors opened. Now, I wouldn't take back a minute of that. And I'm really grateful for that because it taught me about work etiquette. It taught me about being thankful. It taught me to recognize other people's talent. 
Uh, it taught me that I might not always be in the front seat. I might be behind the scenes bringing the best out in people, uh, whatever that may be. And it gave me early confidence uh, to do what I did with Randy Rhodes and Ozzy. Uh, that that may have never happened. I had no business deal. Who was I to really do that? I was a guy playing in a band that sounded a lot like Sabbath derivative band. I met Ozzy because somebody from his label, Jet at the time, said, we hear this guy's band sounds like Sabbath. Maybe, maybe go down there. I mean, it was very innocent. Hmm. And uh, when I met him, I loved Black Sabbath. I still do. Uh, I think those guys started a movement that that nobody has ever done it like them since they started doing it. A lot of people have emulated moments of that, but there's nobody really like those four guys on those early records that were so honest and so real. So I was, you know, I was lucky. And who was I to look at this guy that I idolized and, and, and thought so highly of and said, hey, man, I've got a guitar player. He's going to change your life. He probably looked at me, you're out of your fucking mind. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it was a funny story, but the, the, what had to happen to make that happen, um, almost part of probably helping to reinvent hard rock metal, maybe wouldn't happen. And, you know, you think back to that, there was skinny tie music was very popular, the knack, Devo, a, a lot of these things. That's what hot was going on in Hollywood and, and Sunset Strip at the time. All of the hard rock metal stuff was really fading to black. And I remember I thought to myself, I was up in the Starwood, like there's managers and A&R people and talent scouts and agents. And not one of them is going to go tell this Randy Rhodes guy that he's great and that they can find something for him. And I remember looking around. How is this possible that no one in this room of all these great people with pedigrees is going to say shit to this kid? And I think he's the greatest thing I've ever seen. And so finally, I knocked on the dressing room door and said, I'd like to talk to you. You know, do you know how good you are? He looked at me like he was seeing three people. And I said, trust what I'm telling you. You are that good. And I'm going to find something somehow for you. You should not be doing what you're doing up here. And nor should I, and nor should a lot of people here. And he looked at me like, well, you don't know that. I'm like, believe it or not, guy, I kind of do. And it was one of those epiphany moments. And when I saw the world embrace him, and I thought, well, I was right. Everybody loves him. How would no one in this room get that? And I, I learned people may come in and out of your life and, and say good, bad, or indifferent things, but you've got to have a gut instinct and you've got to stick to your heart. And, and none of those things were about money for me. I never made a dime from that. Uh, I never made a business deal. I put Jakey e. Lee in the band after Randy passed away. I never made any money from that. It was just the right thing to do. And it was also musically where my heart was. And I hope that by doing these things, people may learn that if I had those instincts for doing that, maybe I had other instincts that would alter or change their lives too. And I was lucky enough to be able to do some of that.
What happened after Randy passed away? Did Ozzy just come to you and say, "Mate, I need your help again. Find me someone." Uh, you're 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 very close, actually. Uh, I got a call. It was Sharon, and um, I went through a period right out right as it happened where I blamed myself um, mm. for what happened because I did, in my feeling at the time, kind of push him and talk him into it. Um, it's pretty well documented out there that he didn't really like Black Sabbath. Um, it's well documented. Uh, him and his band would would poke fun at them. And I'm like, how do you play like that and say that? But he had a very endearing story. And I'll, I'll answer your question. But this is something to, to be aware of. He brought me a bootleg. Now, at the time, people would have bootlegs on reel-to-reel vinyl or cassette. And he brought me a, a cassette. I said, what's this? Is it you guys playing, you know, some gig at the Starwood or something? He goes, no, all the stuff you like that I do, that you talk to me about, it's right here. And I'm like, oh, you're going to give me the cassette? And he goes, yeah, I want you to have this. I said, oh, so what is it? He said, uh, well, it's everything you like, where I took it. I'm like, what do you mean where you took it? So this is the magic $20 answer here. Hmm. He says, ever heard of David Bowie? I said, yeah. Ever heard of his guitar player, Mick Ronson? Now I'm staring at him with the frosted hair, the hoop earrings, his cream Les Paul, which, by the way, is exactly Mick Ronson's cream Les Paul, hmm. his polka dots, which was exactly Mick Ronson's polka dots. You could put two pictures from that time period next to each other. And I'm like, holy fuck. I never realized that he was emulating in his mind Mick Ronson, but with more classical playing and his own spin on it. And I'm like, he literally looks like Mick Ronson. Yeah, he does. He's done I'm his hair. Say that. He looks exactly the same as him in some photos. You're so right. Absolutely he does. Yeah. And I never, and he goes, oh, you know, the detuning of the string and the bending of the string and the nut, all the stuff you like that I do, I took it from him. And I'm like, who the fuck would ever believe that? But yet, if you look at the pictures, you really believe it. As a matter of fact, it's so obvious that it was never a comparison that was widely made out there. Uh, but he, even his stage presence, you know, bending down on his knees, playing to the crowd, it was Mick Ronson. And he... I loved Black Sabbath, and the truth was he loved Mick Ronson. And so when, you know, that, but the magic of that music and the classical influence that he had um, with Ozzy's, you know, distinctive sound and uh, vocal stylings, because the truth is people say a lot of things about a lot of people, but who really sounds like Ozzy Osbourne? No one. Nobody. Ozzy, yeah. I mean, the truth. Nobody. A lot of people try to, you know, do their thing, but no one really sounds like him. And if I love music, I love Zeppelin, I love Sabbath, I love, I love it all. I still do. But if you and I looked at each other and said, so who's going to be bigger? Now, this is in the heyday of Stairway to Heaven and Black Dog and a whole lot of love. If we looked at each other and said, who's going to be bigger and last the test of time? Ozzy Osbourne? or Robert Plant, who will play bigger shows, you know, ongoing. We would have probably all said at the time, Robert Plant from and Led Zeppelin. Hmm. But 
Ozzy Osbourne did stand the test of time, I think, more than almost anybody ever believed it could ever be done. Well, the the, the philosophy behind that is it's, it's predominantly Sharon's business now that's kept him afloat in that regard. His talent notwithstanding, but let's face it, he's been a mess for most of his life. He's and- I, I met him as a mess. Yeah, I met him. I met him as a mess, and I think if I didn't shove him into doing what I did, shove him into doing uh, what really would have happened. And it's pretty well documented out there that he himself said he didn't know. And you know, those early days, uh, I just I loved what he, what he did. I love the early Sabbath stuff. So for me, it was wow. I get to work with this guy from this group I love. You know, but. Um, yeah, I agree with you. You know, it, it takes business prowess to do that. And he, you know, with Randy, the funny thing is his instinct was to look straight at me and say simple words. Tell that kid he's got a job. Hmm. And it was pretty instantaneous. And I thought in my heart, that's all I wanted. That's all I wanted. I just wanted someone to recognize what I knew was true, how great this guy was, and someone to reinforce that I wasn't crazy. And he just looked straight at me, tell the kid he's got a job. He didn't flinch. Hmm. So some of his gut instincts, you know, I'll give that to him because we saw Gary Moore together. And I said, look, that guy's fantastic. He's he's incredible. Hmm. He's unbelievable. But he's not for you. Mm, no, he doesn't play your style. Did you know Bob and Lee and, at all? Uh, I'd met Bob. I recorded Bob. Uh, I recorded Bob in Salt Lake City and Boise. I recorded some Aussie live stuff that made a rock palace, a television show and an EP like I'm so tired and more. Mm. Um, and he seemed like a good guy. Uh, you know, I, I I've seen an excerpt or two from his book. You know, Ozzy used Dana at the time. Look, it was kind of mutual. And and I loved Sabbath. I mean, look, everybody's got their running in their story. And um, I, I want everybody to get along. I'm that guy. Like, let's just everybody get along, you know. Hmm. How come, okay, you're right in the center of all of this. How come, oh, it may have, and I just haven't read about it, but uh, you're, how come you weren't in Ozzy's solo band? You sound like as though you would have been perfect. Well, there was a rehearsal in Hollywood where Randy, Frankie, Ozzy, and myself were in there for a couple of days. Hmm. Ozzy was managed by someone else at the time. uh, And I or anybody else didn't really ask permission to go do that. I just took it upon myself to do it. And um, that person uh, is also well-documented and... uh, had a, a colorful past. And um, I think when he walked in the door and realized that, you know, someone else kind of just did this and, you know, he looked up there and and uh, I saw it in, in Ozzy's eyes at the time, like, uh oh, mm-hmm. um, but I was so naive. I had no idea what was about to happen. I think that was a little bit the beginning of the end. He wanted him to go to England, uh, use British musicians, and that was that. And at that moment, even I think Randy was in question. And I'm like, well, you you got to take him. I mean, come on. What? Well, who? Who? You know, and, and I was emphatic. Like, look, no matter what, he's got to go. And 
you know, it it was it was hard because the you know I felt there was some magic happening, and it, the rug was really yanked uh, by other business and other vibe, and it just I'm like so, I guess the contribution is going to be, I this this people if this works, that's what I will have done, and unfortunately, I won't be playing and doing what I wanted, but this is what the cards have in store for me. And uh, they did. Now, in the end, when Slaughter and Ozzy toured, uh, we had fun together. Um, you know, look, he and I have, have Motley Crue, uh, I've also worked with with Vince, uh, and Ozzy did some dates together. And uh, there was a guy named Tony that was Ozzy's guy at the time. Um, and he says, hey, you know, he wants to talk to you. And I said, okay, cool. And, you know, we had a very endearing start. We didn't know each other. And I loved the music that, that, you know, Sabbath made. I knew Tony was, was in my mind, genius with these riffs and genius with bringing these ideas in. And I'd never heard anybody do any of this and his sound and the way he played. And I would crusade like, you ever heard of this Tony Iommi guy? <laughs> this guy changed the world. You know, people are like, Hey data, go smoke another joint. Uh -huh. I'm like, no, I don't think so. But now that you see Tony Iommi later, this many years later, getting the recognition that he very much deserves, um, he invented a certain style of music that's paved the way for people to play guitar even to this day. I hear the stories. God, how many guitarists were thrown up as being legitimate options after uh, after Randy? Though you're touring with one, that being George Lynch. So, with with the J.K. Lee thing, was that a sliding doors moment? For, for him, insofar as he was just the man in the moment at that time? I went to see, uh, this time I auditioned people differently. Um, I got a call from Sharon and Ozzy got on the phone. Uh, you've heard what's happened. You've got to have someone else up your sleeve. And I said, well, I got a lot of people that I think are great. But uh, we're going to figure things out this time. <laughs> and uh, um, George was one of them, for sure. And... Uh, uh, I went to see Jake's group called Rough Cut because Warren D. Martini and some other people had indicated this guy, Jake, is really good. And um, Jake absolutely was better than a lot of people, especially at the time, would have thought. I mean, it was a similar thing. I sat at the Troubadour and, and just watched him and thought, this guy's better than people are giving him credit for in this room. Like, he doesn't belong in this room. This guy's really got a thing. And when Jake played, you know, clean, kind of classical uh, it was far better than anybody would think. Actually, he shined doing that, really. Um, George kind of had the gig. And yeah. that is a story that's out there. And I was told, have him come down, he has the gig. And then I was told, hey, get the Jake guy, have him come in. And I'm thinking, but why? I just told George he had the gig. I was told to tell George he had the gig. And... Um, it was kind of a split decision. And then I was the bad guy having to tell George, hey, I don't think this is going to work out. Uh -huh. And George quit his job, had his stuff packed. Uh, it was it was a really shitty deal. And I felt bad. And it was kind of, well, that's how the business goes, Dana. You know, mm -hmm. go tell Jake. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, why you go tell that guy? You know, why am I the bad guy? Um, but it taught me a lot. You know, it taught me uh, uh, 
it was another level of understanding things that I maybe would or wouldn't have done that way. And um, I choose to do things a little more in my own way. Had I been the one point person there at the time, I maybe wouldn't have done it the way that went. But I was proud to put Jake in the group. I felt bad about what happened with George. He's a great guitar player. And um, in the end, when Jake was fired, um, I tried to help him from being fired. Um, and it just all kind of disintegrated, you know, kind of a bad disintegration. Um, and, you know, in, in the end, I know the guy, Mark Weiss, that put Zach in the game. Yeah. And he knew him from Jersey. He was a photographer. They were friends. And uh, Zach's a really talented guy, too. Nobody comes out of dealing with Sharon unscathed, though. So is that did you come out of it that way, or have you got a war story as well? I think I was I was a little different. Uh, I didn't really ask for anything when I recorded uh, some stuff live for a television show. I was paid through the production company, et cetera. Um, and I, even with Slaughter and, and Ozzy doing No More Tears, um, we never really had an issue or a problem, and, and it was all pretty on the up and up and good. Um, I certainly knew of stories I heard, et cetera, et cetera, but mm. I myself didn't encounter those. Um, you know, look, I felt at one point there was almost this effort to quash what I had done with Randy and Ozzy. And I remember it was in the early day. I'm like, why is it that that would be being buried and there's new versions of this going out yeah. there that are absolutely not the truth. And um, I didn't really understand that. That makes you feel like shit. Uh, but I never really knew who and how that happened. Um, and and I just kind of washed it out of my mind and moved on. And then over time, the real story. And I, I thought at one point when I was seeing interviews or uh, Ozzy and Jack or others, I'm like, well, either somebody's given someone a refresher course on what really went down, uh, or they just know what went down. And I, I don't know, you know, but I was pleased to see everybody tell the truth about it because mm. it was the truth. Yeah. And it's important the truth gets out there. I try to do that a lot on the podcast is get to the bottom of things because there's so much bullshit narrative out there. You see it in politics in this day and age. There's, we're in a post-truth world, but it's long been like that as you can, as your testimony proves in the rock and roll business. It's just crazy that the actual real story wouldn't be the one that's promoted because you're not actually asking for anything outside of just the truth to be told. That's all I really could have hoped for. Uh, you know, I was not selected to be in the final version of the group. So all I could hope for is what I did was put out there so that it could maybe benefit me later. Uh, and when at first it didn't seem like that was going to happen, I'm like, wow, and I'm going to get fucked there too. Really? After this? And um, it it kind of ferreted its way out. And it was funny. I'm not even completely certain how it did. But all of a sudden... I was hearing back what I knew to be the truth about what happened. And I'm like, well, that's always been my story yeah. from moment one. You know, I did a YouTube piece that, that was pretty widely viewed, I think, between 270 and 300,000 views of a, a YouTube piece where uh, one of the guys that was involved just asked me, tell the truth about exactly what happened. Hmm. Now, that was a first opportunity to really put out there blow by blow. What went on? 
From the sublime to the ridiculous, though, Vinnie Vincent, okay? <laughs> was was that always as weird as it looked from the outside? Certain moments may have been weirder. Uh, there were there were undiscussed moments uh, that were just so over the top. I mean, I did everything I could after that whole thing imploded. I walked away, and the truth is I never spoke to him again. I never said hello. I never said goodbye. I never said boo. And I felt I'm far for the better to have just walked away and done what I did. And there were certainly moments on those tours. Don't forget, Vinnie Vincent Invasion toured with Iron Maiden. <laughs> yeah, That in itself, you know, is is somewhat laughable. But I loved Steve Harris and I loved Iron Maiden was a touring machine and they were great. And I learned a lot watching them operate. And so there was something in it, meaning I'm here because I'm supposed to see this. I'm supposed to be around it. I'm supposed to see this. And I, part of the touring business of Slaughter, a lot of it was built off a lot that I saw with both Iron Maiden and Kiss's machine of touring. Mm -hmm. Like these guys know how to do this. And for better or for worse, these people absolutely have this shit down and they got it down good. And they tour the world behaving this way and doing things this way. And um, I I borrowed a lot of that as I could. You're a very rational fellow. I know that I've listened to a lot of your interviews over the years, but I just can't I can't imagine how you put up with Vinny in a tour bus and doing what you had to do with him. So look, I'm going to push you a bit on this point if it's okay, but what was this, what was the strangest thing you had to deal with with Vinny? Uh well there were a lot of a lot of strange moments for sure. Um I didn't first of all, I wasn't a big Kiss fan. I like some of the early songs, uh, Strutter, Cold Gin, Deuce, but I wasn't a big Kiss guy. I love Black Sabbath, Zeppelin. I wasn't a big Kiss guy, so I didn't know a lot. So when a guy introduced me uh, to Vincent Cassano, hmm. it was almost more as a songwriter who was trying to push these demo tapes around. And in the end, I cut up some of those demo tapes in the studio I was in to try to make something that I could maybe, okay, this, you know, and, he, and, and one of the ones I played with was a ballad. It was not guitar shredding, nothing to do with it, because I thought that that ballad maybe would have enough legs to get him a deal and get him somewhere. Hmm. And if you're going to do that, you're going to produce and you're going to be involved, then somebody needs to bring in money to make it work. The studio won't be free forever. And uh, so I didn't know very much. So when I interacted at first, I said, hey, man, I really uh, I dig that first solo on that uh, Lick It Up album on uh, Exciter. You know, I really dig that. He looks at me deadpan. He says, well, that wasn't me. That was Rick Derringer. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, OK. <laughs> OK. <laughs> I said something else that was an absolute complete fuck up, too. And that was like, I, you know, I love the riff. And this Paul played that. And I'm like, you know, what's funny. I guess in my mind, I'm thinking I'm loving everything. I loved everything, but the thing you did. And uh, I mean, it was oh, just, I, you know, it couldn't have been just a worse calamity. Cause again, I didn't know. Um, but one of the incidents, you know, Vinny was having an issue with tuning the guitar with a Floyd Rose uh, 
uh, locking mechanism on the top of the guitar. And he was getting more upset, more upset, more upset. And eventually he's playing by the window in the control room and I'm sitting at the console operating the tape machine. And he, I said, look, don't, don't do it. We've been recording that guitar. And, and if you're going to do something yeah. to that guitar, so I'm trying to be rational. And I'm like, because, you know, we may not match it and everything we go into is going to sound different. And uh, he's talking to the guitar like you motherfucker. I mean, and I'm like, wow, okay. really? And he throws the guitar down uh, and urinates. I said, look, don't do it because we're going to have to pay for the carpet. We're going to have to clean. You know, don't do it. And in someone else's studio, in the control room of a known Hollywood place, urinates all over the guitar and then the floor as well, of course. And uh, pretty much looks at me, looks at Mikey Davis, who was the other second engineer I used. Uh, I think Bobby Rock also, and uh, basically said, I'm out of here. I'm like, okay, well, that was fun. And uh, there there were just so many wild incidents, you know. This this is recent, what would you call it, unveiling coming out? I don't know, meaning his reemergence into the public sphere. And the recent thing is he's charging people to like his Facebook page or join his Facebook page. It's it's I don't think it's even that unusual, but in, in that in that a lot of artists are trying to monetize, but using Facebook to do that, does do any of his actions, recent actions, the last five years, are they in alignment with where you think he would end up 30 years ago? No. N- no. <laughs> I when I left, my feelings were that he'll probably never tour a full band again because Mm. it was not him piecing it together. I was extremely involved. Um, And I thought, and from the records that I did with him, you know, I was extremely involved and I don't see him doing things that sound like that again. And these were all personal opinions, Mm. just my feelings. And um, most of those things quite came true. Everyone in his group, around him went on to do things other than him. Yeah, he did. You're right. Yeah, he's one of those guys, isn't he? Yeah. He's a force multiplier, but he's got to be minus it. He can't be part of it. He's got to be deleted almost. It's wild, you know. I mean, is is what it is. Does anything surprise me? No. It's, yeah, I, the rock and roll world is is full of these stories where we're really – where rational fellas like you have got to put up with very odd personalities. And that's what I, that's what I was getting at when I said you've got to write a book about these things because that era, it's over. I, I get rock and metal will continue. I've just felt it on the 70,000 tons of metal thing. There's very sure. small degrees between, and Monsters of Rock crews, no doubt, same. Yeah. Very small yeah. degrees of separation between those on stage and those off it. I get that. That's why I get to do this these days. But that era that you've come from, that rock star era where there was an opportunity for any of these guys like Vinny uh, to break out and to become as big as John Bon Jovi, you know, that those days are just gone. Those days are over. I, so. think, they're, I think they're done. Yeah, I, I think, I think you know, it's done. I mean, they're the the... You know, if you're a female solo artist 
and you've got great songs and a great production team and the young, young audience likes you, you can make a lot of money and you can stake your claim. And many of them have. Hmm. Uh, if you're a male solo artist, you can do the same. And many of them have. But it's different than the rock groups. Hmm. And um, I'd, I'd love to see some young rock group, uh, you know, come out and make an incredible statement and be the next ACDC, the next Maiden, the next Sabbath. Um, and maybe they will. And hopefully I'll still be alive to see it. Uh, I guess I'm wishful thinking. I don't know that I will be, but wishful thinking. But the people that are still doing it, um, hats off to all of them, you know, in all of their own way. It's not necessarily easy. Uh, and and you, you go through a lot of crap to do it. And uh, the rewards are being out on the stage in front of people that enjoy the music. And and I always tell everybody, look, we're just a bunch of stupid fucking entertainers. Our job is to make people feel good. That's mm -hmm. all. That's all our job is. Just make people feel good for 90 minutes, 75 minutes, 60 minutes. And we have the greatest job in the world making people feel good. And who couldn't like that? Mm -hmm. But there are still a lot of people out there with issues. And I, uh, I can't fix those issues and I don't want to, I, you know, work with the people that I work with and, you know, I do the best that I can in that situation. Mm. Yeah. I think, I think the only opportunity for stadium rock to have any kind of a day again would be in a singular instance, such as if Taylor Swift decided to do a rock album and bring guys like you in to oversee it from a production standpoint, because I know she'd bring in about 50 people to help her do it, or maybe she'd not even her, her management or what have you, but that'd be it. Otherwise, it's we just had Motley Crue and Def Leppard come through town and play, play the stadium here, and they're probably doing the same thing 35 years ago to that point, so it's the same bands that are up there. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. And and look, it's it's tough. You know, uh, young kids don't see any value in music. No. You can go to YouTube and just click anything you want for free. So they're brought up never going and thinking you had to go to a record store and look at the cover and look at the pictures and think about it and read about it. They just click it. And if they like it, they put it on a playlist and they never believe that you had to pay any money for this. And that's all free. And then the advertiser uh, uh, profits, YouTube profits, and the artist, the creator, and everybody else is pretty much left in the breeze. Hmm. Uh, you know, at Flight of the Angels has 43 or 44 million views that hmm. are all natural. And that doesn't count how many times the label ripped it down in the early days when it had four or five million and it got ripped down and four or five million got ripped down. There's live versions from some guy's cell phone with 300,000 views. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, the artists don't really make any money from this. Not so well. the model is if you're training young people that music has no value, then creating music from the ground up as a rock band, other than becoming popular and playing live, uh, there's no hope. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely agree. And I'm glad you frame it that way. And you'd know, let's face it. Um, but look, I'm going to make this my final question for you, and it's a big one, okay? But with with a career as storied as yours, with all of both the success and the critical acclaim, what gives you the greatest sense of personal fulfillment when you look back over it all? Uh, well, that's a really good question. Um, number one, that I'm still alive and I have enough memory intact to think back 
uh, at the good, the bad, the ugly. Sometimes you learn a lot from the ugly. Sometimes you learn a lot from the bad. Sometimes you can learn a lot from the good, but it takes all of it. And um, I'm thankful that I'm my mind is still intact enough and that I didn't corrupt or pollute or destroy my mentality. And I'm still able to try to encourage other writers or other musicians or other bands um, by trying to be rational and trying to be businesslike and on the level. Uh, look, this has potential if done this way. And I'm not Jesus, but these are real feelings. And I've done this repeatedly. Uh, I don't get this, so I'm probably the wrong guy to work with you. But I think what you do is really good. And um, I'm, you know, I'm glad looking back that I'm able to reflect back on all those things and still kind of surmise that I was that young kid in my bedroom with a dream and a bass in my hand. Mm. And I played along to Sabbath records, Grand Funk records, Led Zeppelin records. And all I wanted to do was play maybe in front of people. And that if you have a dream and you have a talent and an instinct, you can go out and do what it is you want to do. Um, it just might not come easy. And if it came easy, everyone would do it. So are you that guy out there that maybe can break the mold and do it? Only you would know. Actually, I will make this my final question for you because I've been wanting to ask you this for a while. But um, you've survived the good and the bad from a from an alcohol and a drug perspective as, as well. You've been around it, is what I'm saying, and you've you've remained yeah. intact and you're sober. How though? I was never interested in drugs. Uh, I was lucky. I lived in L.A., the Hollywood area studio that I worked out of, I lived on the floor with the sleeping bag. Um, there were a lot of drugs, a lot of coke in and out of there, other other harder drugs, and, and you know, lots of illegal marijuana sales and all that. Hmm. Um, and as I saw people that, are you in here, in my mind, are you here to play and make music? Are you in here to just get fucked up? And, you know, there were people that I really respected and looked up to that would come in so whacked out on drugs and, and booze. I'm like, this cannot be the guy from deep purple. Yeah. This cannot be the guy that played on these songs or this could not be the guy. Even when I met Ozzy and Ozzy was really annihilated, uh, drunk, etc. Um, I thought in my mind at first, this can't be the guy that I loved on these records, hmm. it, it, but I never, knew one way or the other. I just thought in my mind, they can't be. But uh, so I learned early on that I don't think this helps anybody write a great song. And I don't think this helps anybody make great decisions. And I don't think this is going to help anybody live a, a very fulfilled or enjoyable life. Because a lot of these people that I met in many of those days were really pretty miserable. And they would bury their sorrows in drugs or alcohol. Yeah. I drink wine. I enjoy a shot of tequila or two, but I don't abuse it. And there are people that I've realized they can't just have one drink or two drinks. Once they get that motor going, they don't, they can't stop. Mm. And so if you're that person, you got to reevaluate. Uh, well, you would think you would have to reevaluate. Right, um, right. So I was I was lucky that I was exposed. People used to, you know, put coke out, you know, oh, come in, come on, Danny, you you know you do it. And I'm like, I don't do it. 
oh, you know, you do, you're talking all like, like that all the time. That's because I'm excited about what I do. Mm. I like this. And, you know, so there, the, the other thing is, if you were in Hollywood at that time and you didn't do drugs, you were kind of not in the good club because you weren't like in the drug cult. Mm. So if you cared about business or cared about making recording sound good, or you wanted to use your knowledge to make things in your face more, whatever it may be, you were not in the good club because you didn't do the line of Coke with someone. And I'm like, really? Really? So I can't make your shit sound good because I'm not a fucking Coke addict. And I'm in my mind, I'm like, you know what? Fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an enormous credit to uh, your state of mind, your psyche, and your resilience to you survived that intact because a lot haven't. No, I I work with them and I I, I meet them all the time and and uh, look, I have a lot of a lot of life. I enjoy what I've done. I enjoy making people feel good. I enjoy making music sound good. I've written stuff for film and I've written stuff for television. You know, I just I like to make music and I like to play and perform, and I like to see songs that I've written or Mark and I have written. Um, make people react and and have a vibrant feeling. I mean, does anybody go to a rock concert or a concert event to have a bad time? They go to have a good time and they go to relive a, a time in their life where maybe things were better and their life was more simple and, and times were just great. So I, I always hope that, you know, people go to have a nice time and um, I'm glad that I've been able to do my part of that. Yeah, great, fantastic. Thanks for coming down too. By the way, I know it's an effort and it's not not straightforward. Every, every all the bands come down and they get paid or whatever. Plenty of bands book shows and don't come, okay, because the, the pre sales are bad or whatever it might be, and a lot has to line up. But the fact that you are coming down, it is meaningful to a lot of people, a lot of old school people that have been in, interested in rock and roll because. It's important to us still. It's as important to us as uh, maybe not, you know, bread and water, but you know what I'm saying. For our emotional health, it's yeah. very important. So thanks for doing that, mate. And it's been great to finally have this chat with you. I'm really nice to meet you too. And and uh, yeah, we were never not going to go unless the promoter guy said, look, hey, it's just not going to work out. I did tell the Danny guy, please, mm -hmm. I don't want to see you lose I'd rather see you just come to some great casino shows or stuff in the States, tag yeah. along with us a few days, have fun, but don't lose your ass. And he's like, that's that's pretty honest to you. And I said, uh, look, man, I don't want to see anybody. I like it when everybody wins. It's a really nice feeling when everybody can win together. And I'm much more that kind of guy. So when we booked it, I said, look, I'm going to buy these tickets. And well, you don't have the guy's deposit. I don't need the guy's fucking deposit. We're going to go hmm. until he tells us we're not going to go. And that was the feeling. So we're going to get on a plane on this coming Monday. Yeah. Uh, we'll land on a Wednesday in the afternoon. And uh, we're going to do the best we can to let people have a good fun time and see some things that they've not been exposed to in Australia. There you go. Well, look forward to it. I'll be there. I'll be, I'll be there. there. So, uh, I'll be there. So, uh, fantastic. Which gig are you going to? Brisbane, Mansfield, Mansfield Tavern. Mansfield Tavern. Uh, please hit John, if you would, and see if, if at least you and I can do a bit of a FaceTime and a, maybe a photo together. Mate, I'd love that. Thank you very much for the offer and the opportunity on that point. I will. I'll let him know. That'd be unreal. Please, please, please let him know, okay? 
Yeah, sweet. I appreciate it. I appreciate your support. I appreciate your love for the music. And you, you've got a pretty good sense of the history of this stuff. And I appreciate you uh, having an old fuck like me uh, uh, be able to talk a little bit about it. I don't think we're too much different in ages these days. That's a scary thing, isn't it? <laughs> scary thing. It's going to get 40 or all old, mate. Hey, listen, I tell, people, I tell people all the time, I'm like, look, man, I'm 66 years old. You're not fucking 66. I'm yeah. like, well, here's the thing. You say music and entertainment is, is, is so bad and it's bad for you, but you haven't done this and you look 20 years older than me. Yeah. And I'm like, isn't that interesting? There you go. So, That's right. You know, right. right there, isn't it? Yep, it's it's interesting, that's for sure. Anyway, look, I appreciate the love. I appreciate the support. Um, you know, I just say this, you know, uh, and I agree with you, R.E., the, 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 some of the Vinny standpoints that you've got. Hmm. I prefer not to publicize anything to do with that period um, because I don't want people getting sucked down a rabbit hole for nothing. Yeah, I, I hear you. It's just it's one of those very odd chapters in rock history if you like that one there and there were some very good people who like you and the rest of the guys in slaughter that were along for the ride and uh yeah it's 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 inexplicably weird looking at it and the, the well your, your, your instincts your instincts are right nobody was treated very well and, yeah. and it wasn't exactly a fond memory uh and at the end uh there there was certainly uh dollars and cents that never really materialized like it should have. And um, that's why I say I don't want to fuel to the fire of interest in this guy so he can do things to other people that might have been done to us. I couldn't imagine you know what I'm saying. any musician that, like any professional musician like you, would ever work with him again. I think it's, you'd have to get bar no. guys. That's, that's, what, that's where he's at. But he's still trying. There's, there's not, not even any reason. Yeah, exactly. It's you know, it's one of those weird. When I, when when either one of us say good luck, it's good luck with a funny meeting. Good luck, buddy. Yeah, you'll yeah. need it. Yeah, exactly. Good luck to everybody else around you's got to deal with you, basically. <laughs> exactly <laughs> correct. <laughs> I'll see you in Brisbane. I'll see you there, mate. Look forward to it. Thanks. Thank, for thank you again. Yes. Thank. Thank you. Thank you for the time. I would have dearly loved to have caught up with Dana at the Brisbane show, but unfortunately. As I mentioned in the introduction, they've been cancelled. They are going ahead in Sydney and Melbourne, however, but anyway, what can you do? So that's it. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith, and I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast. Until the next one, it's a very good bye for now.